This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Sam Blake only began writing after her husband set off on an eight-week sailing trip across the Atlantic. It was probably one of the best decisions of her life. Beginning with her 2016 debut Little Bones, the Irish writer has published a slew of best-selling crime novels that has won her acclaim and fans around the world. After the success of Little Bones and its sequels, Sam moved from police procedurals to writing twisty psychological thrillers the latest of which, The Mystery of Four, was published earlier this year. And in case anyone thought she might start resting on her laurels, this summer also saw the publication of Sam's first foray into young adult fiction, Something Terrible Happened Last Night. Both novels are absolute page-turners, with Sam's trademark eye for character, detail and country house hotel settings making it feel as if Agatha Christie had just been resurrected clutching an iPad. Before Sam joins us from her home near the Wicklow Mountains, and with kind permission of Belinda Audio, here's a clip of Roisin Rankin narrating Something Terrible Happened Last Night. Sitting at the bottom of the stairs in Katie's black and white tiled hallway, Frankie put her head in her hands and tried to shut out the chaos that was unfolding around her. She could feel the tears coming again, hot on her cheeks. Even with her eyes shut, the blue strobes of the ambulance and the guard cars outside were imprinting themselves on her brain. Bursts of garbled radio conversation came to her from the living room, together with the low voices of the paramedics. She felt a hand on her shoulder, and Jess bumped down to sit beside her. Unspeaking, she pulled Frankie into a hug. They'd only known each other a few weeks, but after tonight... Frankie felt like they would be bonded forever. She still couldn't believe how an evening which had started so well had ended like this. She needed the hug. There were no words for right now. Miss, was it you who called the guards? A male voice cut through her thoughts. Frankie opened her eyes and looked up at the man. He had a notebook in his hand and a radio clip to his navy bomber jacket. He was about the same age as her dad, his hat blocking out the light from the chandelier above them. All the LEDs had been turned off earlier, and now the house was flooded by the main lights. Frankie wished Ollie would get here quickly. She still had his sweatshirt on. It came down almost to the hem of her dress, and she hugged it to her now, even though it was warm in the house. She pulled her hands inside the sleeves and crossed her arms glancing back up the stairs at her cousin Sorsha, and then at Jess as she answered. Yes, that was me, Frankie O'Sullivan, Francesca. I live at the Berwick Castle Hotel. My mum and dad run it. Sam Blake, welcome to My Life in Books. Thank you so much for having me. In that clip, we've just met Frankie, her cousin Sorsha, and their friend Jess, and they're all in their penultimate year at high school and they're all good responsible girls who've had to adopt some responsibility because their parents have very crazy jobs and so they're helping clear up after their friend Katie Cipriani's 17th birthday party and discover that something terrible has indeed happened there. Could you just give us a little bit more of their background? Okay, yeah, so there are three girls who go to a school called Ravens Hill. Uh, Katie's a, a friend, so, so she'll be number four, I suppose. Um, there's a whole bunch of them in the class. And uh, they've just started their, their what's called Leaving Cert year. We do the Leaving Cert in Ireland, which is sort of their final exams. And it's they're really getting into that whole study revision. It's a very intense two years. And Katie's birthday falls right at the start of term. So this party is going to be sort of the, the big party, um, probably the last one they'll really have 
when they can relax a bit because they won't be quite they haven't quite got into the studying yet um so her father goes away for the weekend her parents are away and he leaves her his credit card and i think he's expecting you know six friends and a pizza uh, but katie has other ideas so she decides she's going to invite the whole school um and a couple of other schools as well um and as a result of that a big fight breaks out um on the dance floor um and yeah the, as you mentioned it, when, when the girls go back after the fight's been cleared and the house has been sort of sorted out they go back to try and clear up and they discover uh, that something terrible has indeed been left behind but yeah you're quite right they all have very different backgrounds I wanted girls that people could identify with um so Frankie comes from um a ho- her parents are on a hotel so they're working parents like working every day uh, every hour God sends um and she has um four brothers uh, little Max who's eight the bonus child and going up to Ollie who's about 22 and so she's sort of from a big family. We've got Jess, who's an only child, um, whose uh, mother is recently deceased. And uh, her father is a journalist, so he's away a good bit too. Um, and Sorsha, whose parents are scientists and off going to conferences and stuff like that. So the, the fact that this Ravens Hill is a boarding school as well works really well for them because it means that they can, if they need to, they can stay in school and hopefully then builds that relationship between them all. And after this snapshot of the aftermath of the party... We then go back a few days to the beginning of term and you really build up the tension. We know that a body is going to be found at the end of this party, but you give us the lead up to the party and we get to see all the potential suspects. And it's a fantastic way of just counting down to a murder. You you do like to ratchet up the tension, don't you? I really do. I think, I mean, I think that's the whole, one of the things I want people to do when they're reading my books is to desperately want to turn the pages. And, yeah, and that's it. So we don't find out who the body is until the start of the third section of the book. It's divided into um, sort of before the party, the party, and then after the party. I, yeah, I really wanted you to build relationships with all the characters um, so that when you did find out who it was, that it was more of a hit. Because if, we've, if you'd known right at the very start, then you're not emotionally invested in those characters at that stage. And I think it was really important, particularly with a group of teenagers, that you, you really get to know them and get to know their sort of idiosyncrasies as well uh, before we discover what's really happened. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we get close to all the characters, even the school bully, the wonderfully named Ruth Meany. And then we're wandering around the party with Frankie, wondering who is going to end up being the body behind the sofa. Absolutely. That's it. I mean, I really wanted to get a sense of sort of the confusion, not the confusion of a party, but sort of the noise and the lights and the mm. the whole sense of, you know, when you are in a party like that, you, you're not really sure what's going on in, in every corner. Um, and, and obviously it's dark too. So there's a lot going on in, in different places. It's quite a big cast. So um, I was really trying to be very careful to try and make sure all the characters were very, very distinctive. Um, yeah. And we use Frankie to, um, to see what's happening at the party. But Sorsha and Jess uh, decided not to go to the party and they're at home. And so we do see a good bit through their social media because they're they're following the party uh, on their phones through Instagram and all the various bits and pieces. So that's quite an interesting way of being able to see what Frankie can't see, I suppose, um, and be able to hopefully piece things together at the end. Yeah, it really does give us a 360 of of the whole party. And it, it gave me quite an insight for what life is like for teenagers at the moment and they are all glued to their phones or as you put it they're holding their phones as if they were lifelines and these kids are wandering around the party filming themselves filming what else is going on almost desperately trying to show what a good time they are having and yet living the party through the medium of this electronics in front of them and it made me think that they are under 24 hours surveillance at at an age when when you and I were teenagers we were just making mistakes and might be unlucky enough to get caught in the corner of a photograph absolutely I think and I think that's it they're seeing it's it's strange because social media is such a such a huge platform i think it's it's like breathing to these to these kids to to this sort of age group it's very much um a part of them and a part of their world and so when we look at it we see it as we would through you know through a different lens um but for them it's really it's really part of the world but it's i just find it slightly strange that they are 
they're they're nearly removed from the situation because they're maybe filming or taking pictures or you know they're uploading it and doing whatever and you wonder whether they're actually in the moment or whether they're sort of Mm. all all voyeurs um but yeah it's um it's one of the tools we use one when you're writing crime one of the big problems in life um as a writer is actually social media and phones because realistically um we can sort of know where everybody is and there's so much surveillance and so much video these days that um try to have something happen off camera if you like is really quite tricky but with this book i really needed to use all of the tools that these girls have and and use regularly and uh, you know it's like as i say like breathing to them um and try and employ them to try and tell the story as well so yeah they piece it all together basically Yes, absolutely. I mean, they have a huge amount of evidence to gather. The Instagram feeds, the the Snapchats, the, the photos, the videos. And on top of all of that, there is this confessions site called Ravefess, which has been set up by, well, nobody quite knows who, for teenagers to... Well, in many ways, share their anxieties, but it is, again, a a window into all their worlds, all their insecurities, and proves to be very judgmental and, uh, and a place where poison can be sown. Absolutely. I think there's a lot of them. I I really like the idea of, um, I I know there's a lot of Facebook groups, a lot of people in Facebook Mm. groups of different types and sort of community groups. um, And I'd use the Facebook group in Mystery of Four and really enjoyed sort of how that can sow misinformation. And I knew there's a lot of universities that have these confession sites and actually some of them are quite hilarious. So I thought that it was a great tool to be able to to use. Um, And then I've discovered subsequently that actually quite a lot of schools have them too. So it's, yeah, so it's it's a real, from my point of view, from a a writer's point of view, and when I'm trying to misdirect you, it's a fun, really fun tool. So yeah, but it is it can be quite poisonous. Um, and like many um, sites, random pieces of inf- information appear and comments appear. And uh, yeah, the girls, it certainly becomes part of the plot, let's say. Well, yes. And Frankie and Jess particularly have had to grow up a little bit more quickly than your average 17 year old just because of their personal circumstances. And both of them do actually question whether Ravefest, which, as you say, these confession sites tend to be more at university, is a little bit too much of an adult platform for kids who are still experimenting with some of their emotions, experimenting with their actions as well. Oh, absolutely. I think it's the, the great thing about the girls is they're looking at everything and questioning everything and they're all very they're quite bright girls so they and they're aware of their own sort of situations but also very caring and very interested in their friends and what's happening within the group dynamic um and they can see the the good and the bad side of Ravefest but yeah it yeah it pops up over the summer before before they go into leaving cert and um it becomes like the, best, the biggest thing that everybody's talking about um because of the various bits and pieces that have appeared on it and um continues sort of through the book um as a thread so it's interesting to read there's, there's all sorts of there's a few random bits in there as well and interesting platform as we discover we discover the why's and wherefores <laughs> yes. at the end <laughs> now as you say jess and sorcha and frankie use all the various bits of social media cell phone footage to piece together what happened that night the police have their own prime suspect and go herring off after him but the girls are actually using police procedural methods to conduct their own investigation. Jess's dad is an investigative journalist who has a huge whiteboard. Sorcha is the master of the flowchart. And I actually wondered whether this was giving us a bit of an insight into the way that you plan these novels, whether you too have your flowcharts and your, your big whiteboard and the names of all the suspects lined up. That's really interesting, actually. I I have a lot of friends who have very big whiteboards and a lot of post-it notes. 
Um, yeah, so actually I tend to plan. Um, I do a mixture of plotting and planning and not plotting and planning, actually. Um, but I do tend to plan out books um, and I have sort of a grid system that I use and different colours for different characters. And I also create storyboards. So I will find pictures of all the characters for each book that I do and all the locations. And they're like a big A3 piece of card and I'll stick them all on, all the pictures and bits and pieces on so that and group them in, in areas of story so that, that if there's subplots or, um, you know, relationships between characters then they're sort of grouped together on this board. Um, and so that planning I find really really useful um, I don't plan every book um, I wrote one in lockdown actually which is the one that's coming out in January next year which is called Three Little Birds and that wasn't under contract and it was sort of a, a spare book I suppose I had an idea that I wanted to investigate and um, I got to chapter five in that book and I had planned it all out and just as I do all the others and uh, got to chapter five and the person who was supposed to die in chapter five I actually really liked and I thought the reader would really like so I thought well we can't do that so I'll just just change the plot and keep her in and see what happens and because it wasn't under contract and I wasn't didn't have a deadline I just thought well I'll just keep writing and see what happens and it was really interesting and really liberating to to try that um and so I did the same for the mystery four and the same for something terrible I had I had an idea of where I would wanted the story to go so I knew what happened and I knew obviously but then it was a case of working out how how I was going to tell the story. Um, so, yeah, so it was plotted to a, a certain extent, but not massively. Um, but if I had, I haven't got wall space in my office actually for a whiteboard, but I would really love one. Certainly the the big picture boards that I do are really, really, really useful um, because it means when I'm, if I'm writing or if I go away to do an event or whatever, when I sit down back again, I've got everybody looking at me accusingly. <laughs> <laughs> I always love reading author's notes and I was rather fascinated to find at the end of this book that you direct readers towards a Sims mock-up of Katie's house, of the murder house, which you've also created online. You, You clearly have a very sort of 3D sense of the locations in which you set your murders. I can very clearly picture the staircases and the rooms off the rooms. You inhabit these stories, don't you? Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that. It's it's obviously working. That's wonderful to hear because, yeah, I absolutely love location. And I feel location is like a character in a book. And it's really important that you can see what I see. So, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm always trying to give you a sense of place and a sense of living in the story so that you you feel like you're actually there with the characters. But with something terrible, the Sims thing, one of my kids is mad into the Sims and plays it a lot. And I just thought it was really fun. I think with a YA book, you've, you can do a little bit more um, because obviously the, that age group are using the Sims a lot. And I love the idea of the fact that people could go in and create their own party and, um, you know, play around and actually see it's not it's it's very close close to being true I wanted to use the basic pack this is a little bit technical and winning if it comes to the sims but I wanted to use the basic pack that nobody had to pay for so that limited us a tiny bit but it's um yeah essentially the house is all there and you can have a look at it and sims is incredible because it takes you through the whole day so you can see it in the morning and then you can see it at night and see how the light changes and that type of thing so yeah it was fun it's just I think it's just another it gives you another angle on the book because for me these books and these characters really live they feel like real people and it's just I suppose another way of giving the reader a little bit more access I think the reason I fell in love with murder mysteries when I was an impressionable teenager was exactly that sense of you can inhabit the mystery, you you can go into the Cluedo house and work out which of the suspects did it. And in the 21st century, we do have these electronic tools, as you say, either to, to recreate the layout of the house or the social media that you're using to recreate the crime it's very much like Agatha Christie using the railway timetables to to trace back where the possible suspects could have been. And it, it's that, that incorporation of new technology and, and how those tools can be used to trap the murderer. Absolutely. Yeah. No, and the railway timetables is a really interesting one. It's yeah, that whole Agatha Christie sort of locked room thing. I was I was very interested. Um, so I wrote the Mystery of Four first and then I wrote something terrible, but I was really interested in the in that whole locked room concept. And yeah, certainly in the murder of Roger Ackroyd, the timetables become significant. Um and there are other sort of Agatha Christie's where she uses, yeah, these tools. And I, I love that. I love that detail because I think as a reader, you're sort of making a mental note and you're exactly mm. as you say, you're trying to work it out yourself. And that's what I 
want you to be doing as a as a reader. Um, I remember I interviewed Jeffrey D for a little while ago, and he said that um, he likes to put three twists in each of his books. So he puts in a the first twist is for, for readers exactly like that, who who are really trying hard and who are keen mystery addicts and will will get that twist. Um, and then the second twist is for the really, really super high level mad keen aficionados um, to give them something. Um, but the third twist is the one that nobody will get. So you'll still go away, from, leave the book with a sort of a wow feeling, uh, you know, and I couldn't get that. So I think that's, I'm not, I don't constantly look for those twists to go in, but um, that's the sort of the structure. Um, and I think things like railway timetables and social media and things like that are, are just wonderful tools to be able to do that. Yeah, it gives us a sort of interactivity Equally important, though, and something else that comes up from your author's note at the end, is just how much respect you have for your readers. Something Terrible Happened Last Night does cover areas that cause teenagers a lot of anxiety, bullying or violence at school. And you do point out that any of your classmates who might pretend that they've got everything sorted is actually probably just papering over the cracks. Yeah, I think I think that's really important, particularly with this age group, that um, and with social media itself, it's, it's a very false environment. And, you know, we all put up, even I do it too, we always want to put up the best picture of ourselves. And that's human nature, I think. Um, but I think if you if you are feeling insecure in any way or you're suffering from anxiety and, and certainly in today's world um and particularly because of social media um and sort of access probably to too much information people are do tend to be very anxious and that's really quite normal um and so i really wanted to yeah just to be very clear to people that actually what um i think sometimes if people can say it over and over and over again but you don't always hear it do you so it's i think it's important that we do keep saying this over and over again and that one what it'll only be the one time that it chimes that that makes a difference but that yeah things aren't always as rosy on the surface as they they might be um and i, I yeah i just think that's really important is that part of the reason why you decided to start writing young adult fiction as well as adult fiction? A kind of almost a, a sense of a duty of care as a parent of your own teenagers? Um, I'm, I think that's something that's always in your back of your mind. And it's in the back of my mind when I'm writing adult fiction too, that I'm very aware of the fact that um, I'm writing crime and that there are re very real victims of crime in the world. And I need to be very sensitive to that. So it's, yes, yeah, definitely something in the back of my mind. Um, I suppose I started writing it more because I had an idea. And I could, once you get an idea, you can't just, just it, can't, it has to go somewhere. <laughs> you have to write it. Um, yeah. I was approached by, um, by, by the editor and uh, to write some children's books. And she actually wanted younger books. And I just couldn't do that. That wasn't me. I just, I did try. But um, I um, just couldn't get the voice right. But then I had, I'd had the idea. And uh, then when I started thinking about the girls, these girls, then they just grew and became so real to me. Um, I feel like they're my girls now. So I, um, yeah, feel like I know them. They're just down the road. No, I never offer spoilers on this programme. But there is an opening for a sequel at the end of Something Terrible Happened Last Night. Is it going to become a series? Um, yes, I think so. Well, I don't know about a series, but I've written another book, Just I'm just writing at the moment, actually, with the same with the same team, I suppose. Um, mm -hmm. The emphasis is in a, in a slightly different place, but, um, well, it is at the moment, but I'm doing a big rewrite on in draft two and um yeah so we, we will visit them again i don't feel it's funny when you write stories sometimes you feel the characters are done and dusted in the book and, and we've you, you've met them and that's it and that's their story and sometimes you feel like their story's not over mm. when i wrote a book called no turning back there was a character in it called anna lockhart who's a professor um in trinity and i really felt when i when i was writing her she has a a fairly big part in that particular book. I felt that her story wasn't over. And um, so I then wrote a book called um, High Pressure that she features in. And that had a girl in it. It's a bit complicated now with all these character names, but that had a girl in it called Brioni, and um, who actually is pronounced in the audio as Bryony for anybody who's, who's listened to that. And I felt her story wasn't over either. So she popped up in another book called Remember My Name. So sometimes, yeah, the characters, I need to, I need to keep going with them if you like and I love girls to pieces so um yeah we'll see I don't know how many books I'll be or how what we'll do with them next but there's definitely going to be one more well they are quite a formidable crime fighting trio and actually I, I I thought there were elements of Cat Connolly spread between the three of them and um they could probably make pretty good guards pretty good police women 
they would actually they're they're a hoot aren't they they're a real they're a real team somebody said they were like charlie's angels teenage charlie's angels <laughs> i think that's a really good analogy well we're going to move on to the other novel that we have touched on already the mystery of four but that's after this break Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111. Welcome back to My Life in Books, where this week I'm in conversation with Sam Blake, author of not only Something Terrible Happened Last Night, but also The Mystery of Four, which is a dazzlingly twisty country house murder mystery set at the foot of the Wicklow Mountains in Ireland. And Sam, it's got a serial killer dubbed The Radio Snatcher. So, you know, what's not to like? I had to pick it up. It's a fantastic book, and as we discussed before, you love location, and it's set in the rather glorious Kilfenora House, one of these wonderful Irish country houses that's fallen into disrepair. And now Tess, who has made her money in technology, has come to rebuild it and put it back to its former glory. That's it. So, yeah, it's a, one of those houses that's just, uh, I think it was a fire and all various things have happened to it. Uh, Tess is working in Dubai and she's ready to come back to Ireland and sees an Instagram post from the estate agent saying, you know, the house is for sale. And um, it really just it really appeals to her that this is a huge project. She feels, I think, she needs to rebuild her life. And so rebuilding Kilfenora is sort of a, a, an echo of that. Um, and the best bit is that her, her best friend, Jen, lives in the same village the village next to Kilfenora and that's really how she finds out about um, the house in the first place so yeah so it's a it's a sort of labour of love and we meet her a week before the grand opening and she spent sort of two years building it up and she's got this um, she's got everything thought of she's got a vintage car rally and a market happening the weekend um, and very importantly she's got um, a production of Faust which a local playwright um, has written for her and that she has the entire village pretty much involved in this um, as characters in this play so there's a lot riding on Kilfenora opening properly Um, but then things really do begin to go wrong and again yes we've got a countdown to disaster and the house also has a curse on it which is visited upon the female members of the household so you're really layering up the potential doom overhanging tess's labour of love in restoring this house yeah absolutely and she doesn't know about the curse until sort of a a little bit through the way the book and yeah it's it's very much i love agatha christie and i love that locked room mystery and the sort of whole country house concept so i pulled on lots of different uh i suppose classic crime elements as i pulled the story together um and i actually didn't know about the curse until i was sort of halfway through the book and, and writing the way um and yeah so basically what happens is that the first thing that happens um as she's getting ready to go out, out over to the house is she gets a phone call from a journalist to say that he thinks there's a body buried on her property um which just ties into this as you so rightly say the radio snatcher and i, I was really interested in that i was watching um a documentary with trevor mcdonald and he he was investigating the um, victims of Fred West mm. um, and had approached a farmer or a, a family who lived in a farm, had a lot of land where they felt that one of these victims might be buried and approached them. They weren't the police. They were a TV company who were doing investigations and approached them to ask if they could come and look on the land. And the landowners refused permission. And I just thought it was a really interesting moral dilemma, because if you're faced with that, you know, particularly a case like that, that is going to bring the world's media down on top of you that's sort of one consideration but then you've also got the consideration of you know if the victim is on the land then you know their family and closure for their family so I thought that was a really interesting moral dilemma that was one of the things that sort of set me off thinking about you know properties and land and that type of thing and that's really what happens to Tess uh, right at the very very start so that's the first thing that goes wrong but then basically the cast of Faust 
all sorts of things begin to happen to them. Um, and she finds herself caught in this whirlwind of things where they're not really very sure whether there is a murderer out there, you know, what's happening, because each of the things that happen are quite different. So it's not your standard serial killer where you've got a pattern and, and you know what's going on. And it takes a while for Tess to realise what's happening. And one of the things that she does realise when she's having a chat to Mark, who runs the local pub, is that there's a curse on the house as well. So yes, we have uh, we have all sorts of things at play in Kilfenora. And a great cat as well. Yes, well, I, I'm going to come on and discuss the cat. I was uh, particularly struck by him. But yes, again, part of the way Tess is taunted is through social media, which reaches further into your life than... Even the curtain twitches. I I loved your description of the the curtain twitching of a small community as being the windows with squinting eyes. Social media weaponizes those squinting eyes. It certainly can, and I think we see that in the community Facebook group I mentioned mm. earlier in Kilfenora, and um, everybody throws in their two penneth and what they think about things, and some of them don't really have a very strong filter, um, so all sorts of things pop up in that too. And yeah, so we, we're getting a sense of the village and the villagers and the sense of place through that as much as we are through the characters themselves, because although it's quite, again, it's quite a big cast because we've got um, the different individuals involved in the play, I wanted to get a, get a strong sense of identity so you, you were able to keep track of everybody. And yeah, so the social media is quite important. And again, it's a feature of modern existence, isn't it? And particularly in a small village where you've got, you know, lots going on. There's lots of gossip and lots of chat. Um, I live in a village that has a village Facebook group and um, there's quite a few local ones around here. Um, and I always find them absolutely fascinating. Yes, it's that, that lack of filter that you get when you're pressing buttons rather than actually looking at somebody face to face. Exactly, exactly. You tend to forget that this is actually a conversation and other people are going to read it. Um, yes, yeah, so there's a good bit of that, a good bit of criticism of Tess about the parking and and how the village is going to cope with this influx of tourists and, and all sorts of other things going on. Yeah, in, in against the backdrop um, of these things happening in Tess's life. Yeah, she's, a, she's assisted by her best friend Jen and Jen's mother who is a retired actress and quite a grand character in the book. Clarissa is a fabulous character, isn't she? And again, she's a woman in her 70s. She in many ways represents an older morality and she's not going to allow the future of Kilfenora House to be dragged back by things from the past. Absolutely. She's got, yeah, I've got, she's got a very strong sense of right and wrong. She's, she's, yeah, she knows what she wants. She knows what's right. And she's massively supportive of Tess. Yeah, she's just, she's a very, yeah, very, very big, big, strong character. Um, I loved writing her. She knows a lot about a lot of things. Um, she's recently become a star of, on a Netflix show. So one of her, she was in the theatre and she was in film as well in her heyday. But um, one of her, her, shows has been recently played on Netflix so she's really quite famous now and um, she's sort of living with that fame um, so she doesn't really want to get involved in the play that's happening in case you know it doesn't reflect well um, but she's sort of keeping an overview on everybody um, very much so um, everybody in the village and what's happening um, yeah she works part-time in the antique shop which is Jen's antique shop um, and spends a lot of time looking out of the window keeping an eye on everybody literally <laughs> yes I wondered if she might uh, appear in another one of your books she's a little bit too good a character to let go I would have thought she's brilliant isn't she I know (laughs) for anybody who hasn't read it yet you get a nice she has a she has a a big fanfare at the end she's she's very significant at the end of the book and uh, she gets she has her moment um but yeah no she's she's great I loved her and um she just arrived on the page literally I'd started thinking about the story I'd watched Agatha Christie's Murder, Murder is Easy recently and I liked the idea of different things happening to different people and it not necessarily being connected so I was very interested in that and I saw the Trevor McDonald thing and I was reading um, a book called The Dictionary of Crime by a friend of mine called Amanda Lees which is basically a, uh, an A to Z of ways you can kill people it's just great great breakfast reading for a crime writer um, and I got to aconite which is a poison a very interesting poison um, in Amanda's book obviously you can tell I didn't get very far because I wasn't out of the A's and, uh, and again poison's a, a thing that Agatha Christie was an absolute expert on um, and I just started thinking and things began to grow. And yeah, Clarissa literally arrived in very early chapters of the book um, as a fully formed character uh, with Merlin the cat. Before we move on to Merlin the cat, Agatha Christie too had a poison garden, didn't she? She did. She was an absolute expert on poison. Mm. She studied them and she was really well qualified. Um, and that's why she uses them in, in a lot of her books. Um and uh, I'm sure she's used aconite too, but it's it's just yeah, it's fascinating. It's a whole world of um, that that particular one is very interesting. Um, I won't go into too much detail, just in case um, you have to Google it yourselves. <laughs> in case 
say I don't want to be I don't want to be the inciter of anything awful happening to anybody. <laughs> and I'm not going to ask you what you've got growing in your garden. I hope it's herbs. Now, Merlin the cat, he is a real character. I understand from the notes at the end of the book. Yeah, he's my son's cat, and so he plays himself literally. Um, <laughs> he's a very, very big black cat, um, a very grumpy, cross, opinionated cat. Um, Sam, my son, is the only person who can pick him up. He'll happily hiss at you as he walks past. I mean, for absolutely no reason. Um, and so he's yeah, very, very strong. And I really wanted him. Uh, literally, as I was writing, Tess sitting in her office, looking out at the back of the stable yard because she she lives in the butler's house in out, just outside the gates of Kilfenora, just outside the sort of the main part of the house. And she was looking at the sort of the stable yard, and he sloped into the shadows. Um, and there he was in the story, and he he becomes very important later because he's he's somebody else that's watching everybody. Um, and he and Clarissa are very 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 close. Yeah, they're both very good judges of character, aren't they? Indeed. Indeed. And if you know cats, that'll give you a few clues, but there'll still be a twist at the end that you won't get. Sorry. <laughs> now, something else I read in the notes is that you live in a 200-year-old house at the foot of the mountains and that it's got a poltergeist. Now, there is quite a lot of creepy goings-on in Kilfenora House, and I wondered if you ever felt tempted to sort of stray into the supernatural rather than keeping it quite earthbound as you have done so far um i did in yes yeah, so i live in a post office an old post office and um it's 200 years old very very thick walls um and i just to tell people about the post poltergeist he it's not one of these ones that throws things around it's quite strange it, it only pops up every now and again but it tends to move things around and hide things a lot um so literally yesterday i was sitting at my desk here and um needed to do a calculation and reached my calculator which should have been next to my laptop and i couldn't find it anywhere and i was lifting the laptop up and searching and moving there's a lot of paper on my desk moving the papers moving the books having a good hunt and couldn't find it anywhere and used a different calculator uh, and about 10 minutes later one of my children walked into the room and asked me something and I turned around and there's the calculator sitting right next to me um so that's the type of thing it does it moves things around a lot uh so yeah so it's not too scary but um yeah I suppose I'm really I am really interested in I suppose the emotions that can be trapped within a building and inside a house um I got a bit more into the supernatural in a book called The Dark Room which is set in a country house hotel in West Cork um although the idea originally originated in Cornwall it has to be said not so far away from Frenchman's Creek we're talking about Daphne Jamari yeah. a little bit later I think um so yeah so the, and the dark room had quite a strong supernatural presence um that becomes explained later um when I first thought of that idea it's set around a house called Hare's Landing um and Hare's in fact I discovered when I finished the book nearly are the in the Irish folklore the, the messengers between worlds um and so the Hare's suddenly took on this this extra level of importance which was quite spooky I have to say um so yeah I just think about it for the mystery for but as I say I had done I we'd been the supernatural route in the dark room so I didn't want to go quite there again do you know what I mean I'm trying to I, mm, I suppose I'm trying mm. you're always trying to do something different in each book and, and stretch yourself as a writer um so yeah there are some spooky goings on though and then it's down to the reader to decide I suppose how much is really spooky and how much is um I don't know folklore perhaps and you have certainly moved in a sort of more psychological thriller direction from your initial success with the Cat Connolly police procedural books to something which is far more the games that are played in the minds of people who are caught up within a crime, within a murder. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's really interesting to try and move through the different, I suppose, the different genre. When you think of a story, you're not always thinking um, of how it's going to be classified it just is a mm. story um and so actually when i started my writing my very very first book little bones i didn't even know it was going to be a police procedural um little bones is about um in fact cat Connolly, as you mentioned finds the bones the bones of a baby hidden in the hem of a wedding dress um and that's what the story is all about but when i started writing that i'd written quite a lot of it and there was no cat Connolly in it it was only when it suddenly dawned on me that somebody actually needed to find the bones in order for there to be a story that she marched straight into the cottage where the, this thing was hidden and um um, there she was and then she stayed for another two books um so um yeah so it's funny when you think of a story um it can go in different ways 
Um, the book I mentioned before that I wrote in lockdown, um, Three Little Birds, is actually about a forensic facial reconstruction artist. Mm-hmm. So we're moving back a little bit back into forensics and away from thrillers uh, or the psychological side of it um, with that one. But um, it's really strange because I'm always working ahead, way ahead of when things are published. So um, the book I'm just about to start, I have to finish the next children's book and then I'm writing another book, which will be a uh, psychological mystery and probably set in Paris. Uh, that'll be the 2025 book. So yeah, working ahead. Um, but yeah, I think story comes and it's part of part of it is deciding the best way into it, you know, for the reader. What's the best way to tell the story and whose story is it and how am I going to tell it? Um, and that sort of dictates a bit, um, I suppose, the nature of the book. I'm very lucky that I have a fantastic publisher um, who who is happy to sort of move gently in whichever direction uh, the books go um so um yeah so that's that's where we are with those do you also have a, a police advisor who you talk to because you, you your your knowledge of procedure your accuracy is very very good it's one, one of those things that a lot of us who who read crime find quite irksome when people play fast and loose with actually what could really have happened it, it, it just grates but you whilst keeping it fictional keep it real yeah absolutely um yeah my husband is a retired guard detective which is a big mm-hmm. bonus um and obviously has lots of colleagues in the job um so i am able to reach out to people um and also forensically too i suppose i've connected with a lot of people um who are specialists in the area there's a fantastic guy called professor jim fraser in scotland um who it's just knows everything about everything. He's an expert witness in a whole load of different areas and uh, was involved in some really, really big murder trials. Um, he has a really interesting memoir, actually, that's worth, that's worth looking up. Um, and um, so he's really helpful, too. And because you do come to points where you need to you need to ask questions. One of the key things for me is that I want if you're a policeman or you're a forensic pathologist or um, an event manager, as Tess is, I want you to be able to read the book and it to be true to your world so that you're not jerked out of the story. Because, yeah, I'm I'm the same as you. If I read something and it's not, you know, and I know it's not factually correct, then it ruins the story for me. Um, so it's really important for me that this world is real and um, it's complete and that it, and it works in, I suppose, in real life. Um, so, yeah, I spend a lot of time making sure I get the research right and um, checking dates and things like that. There's quite a lot of mystery for us, obviously has a historical background. And there was this amazing um, weather catastrophe that happened um, in Ireland called the Big Wind. Um, So I did a lot of uh, research. And of course, I've now completely forgotten the date. I think it was around 1898, something like that. And um, it that it ties into the book and that's a real thing and the the, the real things that happened um and so i was able to tie the story into that too so um yeah so i and i love research my undergraduate degree was in history and i think that uh, that's it's always it's always there in the background now you're a very generous writer as well anybody who checks out your website can see just how good your relationship is with your readers and i was um interviewing Aoife McMahon, who's done a lot of narration for your books and many others um, over the years. And she was singing your praises on just how much you have helped her writing her debut novel, which, again, actually reaches back into history and, and is clearly very well researched. You're writing a couple of books a year at the moment. Where do you find all the time? Um, I don't know, actually. <laughs> I think, and that's lovely that you've interviewed Aoife. She's amazing. She just reads the most incredible books. And her debut novel is fantastic. I really loved it. Um, so, yeah, fingers crossed for that. And that, that it finds, finds its home. Yeah, I suppose everything I do is interrelated. So as well as writing the books, I'm on the board of the Society of Authors and I'm on the board of the Crime Writers Association. Um, and I run a festival called Murder One, which is um, my festival. And so I do all sorts of bits and pieces. I run the publishing consultancy and I run a big website called writing.ie. I do have amazing people working for me. So that's mm. so that they're a huge support. Um, I've got the most incredible PA who, who picks up all the pieces and um, matches everything together, which is brilliant um and i absolutely couldn't do it without them but i think it's i think it's all interrelated and i think that helps so that when i'm having a conversation with somebody you know i'm wearing three or four hats um and um and that always makes a difference um but i'm also i suppose i'm quite driven and um and i work quite well and sort of in a project-based way um and in short bursts as well so i can fit in the writing around the edges 
Um, but yeah, um, I, I don't. I suppose I probably work too much. I probably spend too much time working and not enough time <laughs> relaxing. But um, but I love it and I love traveling and I travel as a result of all of it, um, which means I get to go to the theatre. I was in the theatre in London there recently and um, you know get to do lovely things. So it's fantastic. I can't can't knock it. You also work with one of the best audiobook production companies around, Belinda, who I know think very, very highly of you and ensure that you get the best narrators in the business. As I said, Aoife McMahon for your Cat Connolly books and many of your other adult thrillers. And Roisin Rankin does a oh, yeah. brilliant job. Isn't she amazing? I don't even know how she does it. She's so brilliant. And she really has, she has a young voice without that kind of awful squeakiness that sometimes young adult fiction audiobooks can have. She sounds like a 17-year-old girl with responsibilities and attitude. She really does. And when she reads it, she reads it, I don't even know how to explain this, but she reads it better than it sounds in my head. Mm. So she gets the nuances and the, she's just, she, I, for me, she lifts it to a next level. She's just, she's amazing. She's a brilliant, brilliant reader. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely thrilled with her. Um, and, um, and Belinda are amazing. They're just, they're just absolutely the best people to work with. Um, really lovely. And they, they really nail it in terms of, um, yeah, finding different, different, because they found Eva for me um, and find, get, getting the right voice for the books um, that we actually had um, as well for uh, Keep Your Eyes on Me, which is one of the first was the first thriller. Um, we had Ivana Lynch, who's from Harry Potter, um, which was quite stunning. So um, she did that one. Um, so she has she's a completely different voice to the others. But um, again, freshen things up a bit. Um, so, yeah, no, I'm thrilled. Um, I love audio. Oh, I find it quite Really quite amazing. We're going to talk. I know I'm back to Daphne Jamori again. I keep talking about Daphne Jamori. <laughs> I'll save that. I'll say, talk to you about the audio of Daphne Jamori in a minute. But um, yeah, I find it quite incredible. It's it's like um, it's like I suppose it's like watching a film in the sense that it's or looking at a piece of art or looking at the theatre. Each of those things are a different art form. And for me, audio is a different art form. It brings more to my story than I can because I, it's just a different a different way of appreciating it. Well, a wonderful narrator I interviewed a few years ago described it to me as theatre for one. And I'm the one in the audience listening to that book. And it's such a treat. And um, well, I, I think it's probably time to find out whether any of the three books of your life were books that you first heard or have recently heard as audiobooks. So without further ado, was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? Um, I don't think it was one book because I was a mad, huge reader when I was a child. So certainly I would have read all the Enid Blyton's and the Nancy Drews and all of those mysteries. And so the famous five are really, I mean, they, they're, they're the sort of seminal books of my childhood that just, yeah, reading them voraciously. But then loads of other ones as well. Um, the book that stands out for me as a child is a book called The Little White Horse by Elizabeth Googe. I think it's just because that book it's sort of part fantasy. Whenever you mention it to anybody who's read it as well, they're like, oh my goodness, yeah. It's got, it's, the, the scenes in it are so clear. It's so beautifully written that I can see Maria Merriweather's bedroom. I can see um, the geraniums in the glass house at the back of um, Moonacre Manor. I can see those scenes now, which is, I don't know, I even know how many years later. Um, and I literally, I picked it up this morning because I was looking through it. So I can tell you a little bit, a bit about it. And I started reading it again. And now this is going to be straight to the top of my next read because it's, <laughs> just as accessible now as it was then it's really really lovely it's yeah basically it's a, a story about um, Maria Merriweather who is um, an orphan and she goes to Moonacre Manor to meet sort of a distant uncle uh, with her governess Miss Heliotrope and her dog Wiggins and all sorts of things happen when she gets to Moonacre Manor it is one of the most beautifully written books ever of all time and is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread um, well, the, my favourite book of all time, which I've alluded to a few times now, is actually Daphne de Maurier's Rebecca. And I would reread that. I just find it, it's so multi-layered. It's got absolutely everything. It's a romance. It's a mystery. It's got everything. But it's so multi-layered that every time you read it, you find something new in it. You see something that you didn't see before, which to me is the absolute 
pinnacle of, of, of writing ability but it's really interesting we're, we're talking about audio because I was on the radio the other day and I actually hadn't listened to the audio book of Rebecca before and we were talking about Rebecca and they played the the opening and obviously it has a, the famous first line um, last night I dreamed of Mandalay but then they played a little bit more and I suddenly realised I had this sort of revelatory moment where I realised in fact the entire plot of Rebecca the whole story is, is nearly summarised in the first four or five lines and from a writing perspective that's just it's never next level genius um and i hadn't re- i've read it so many times i hadn't realized that so i think any book that you can dip back into and find something new each time is just wonderful um and the audio brings I'm, i am listening to the audio now as a result of that and i'm seeing so many things that i didn't see before as a reader which is just fantastic and of course it's got the wonderful country house setting which absolutely you and she both have in common that that love of country houses that's it. That's it. It's such a fantastic setting. Um, it really just is. Yeah. So but the Mystery 4 is a country house. The Dark Room has a country house. I'm going to probably have to come up with a new location. <laughs> but it's, um, but no, Yandalay is wonderful. And I think it's, that's the type of book I want to write, I suppose, as a writer. I want it to be multi-layered. I want it to be something where you get more than just that there's the story, but there's all the different layers of story as well. So I think that's what I'm striving for. We'll see one day, perhaps. And finally, is there a book that you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? Yes, I have just finished um, a book by Lisa Jewell, and it's called None of This is True. And I think it's one of the best thrillers I've ever read. It's definitely my book of the year. It's about, um, we're back to social media again, it's about a podcaster called Alex Summer. And Alex is out um, having her 45th birthday. She goes out to a bar and she meets a lady there called Josie who has realised that they have the same birthday. Um, and so they're, they're, they're sort of birthday twins. And Josie approaches her and says that there's some exciting things are about to happen in her life and she wonders whether Alex would like to make a podcast about it. And so basically the story is Alex ma- making the podcast but Josie is just the most incredible character. She's she's sort of super scary. And the title, None of This Is True, is absolutely so right at every level of the book. So you will, I couldn't breathe reading it. I mean, honestly, it's so gripping that you just keep turning the pages. And the structure is incredible because there's bits of podcasts, there's sort of random bits of podcasts going through the story that inform you a little bit more about the plot as, as they go along which I just found incredible. I mean, it's just sort of so, so structurally and just in terms of story, it's just brilliant. So none of this is true by Lisa Jewell. Couldn't recommend it highly enough. Well, Sam Blake, thank you so much for sharing more of the story of you as a writer and your two latest books with us today on My Life in Books. Thank you so much for having me. It's time to turn the page on another edition of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Sam Blake, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to hear another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favorite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this program by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.